You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. It's been almost a year since the Norwegian massacre. Later, we'll hear about the interface between forensic psychiatry and the judicial system and the moral and ethical implications of that. The difficulty there, of course, is if you decide that the person was actually insane, what happens then is you put them outside of the judicial system. But before that, seven papers on bmj.com and one in BMJ Open look at the science behind sports products adverts. Earlier this week, Deborah Cohen, who wrote many of those papers, and I went to the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford to talk to Matthew Thompson about the European Food Safety Agency's recent ruling on those claims. Okay, so you've looked at the um, EFSA's handling of the health claims to do with um, sports drinks, or they call them carbohydrate electrolyte solutions. What were your impressions of the quality of the evidence? So what EFSA set out to do was to look at the evidence for sports drinks, and they looked at three claims which had been put to them by the sports drinks manufacturers in, in Europe. Um, two of these claims they upheld. In other words, they said they found enough evidence to back up what the, 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 the drink was claiming to do. And the two claims that they've upheld are, firstly, that uh, these drinks increase water absorption, and secondly, that they maintain performance of exercise. So we've looked at the methods that EFSA's used to back up those claims and we've tried to reproduce them and looked at the same evidence that EFSA cites for supporting these two claims. So what EFSA sets out to do is to look at the totality of the evidence. They say they're going to weigh up the evidence, they're going to look at um, the entire body of evidence for whether these products work or not. Um, Unfortunately, what they seemed to actually do was much less than that. So firstly, by relying on the companies to send them the studies that the companies wanted, there's a risk that they only got to see the positive studies and they weren't sent the negative studies or the studies that showed no effect or or equivalent effect. Secondly, they didn't really seem to have a way of deciding what was a scientific study and what wasn't. So in the references they they present and they're there for the public to see on their website. They list book chapters, opinion statements, you know, clinical review articles, no systematic reviews, but just reviews and opinions and essays and book chapters. So not what we would call scientific studies. And they didn't have a way of looking at the quality of these. And when we've looked at the actual scientific studies, um, many of them are very poor in quality. These are mostly small studies of eight or nine endurance trained athletes. And there's multiple problems with the way that the studies were actually conducted. And lastly, they said they look at the totality evidence, but when you boil down to the actual scientific studies, it's not clear how they made the decision. Did they base it just on the scientific studies or did some of the other opinions or the other book chapters weigh in on their decision to uphold these claims? So it seems that they've set out to do one thing for various reasons, perhaps lack of time or skill or funding. They've not been able to do that and we're left with two claims being upheld which are then going to be used as of this year to market and label sports drinks across Europe if the companies want to use these labels. And 
in your view, do you think those judgments are justified based on what you've seen? I think the methods are so poor that you cannot make a decision. It, it's certainly not for a product that's as widely used as this and where there seem to be many other options for consumers to drink and eat. Uh, but to, to have a decision based on such poor methodology uh, for a market of 500 million people in Europe seems shocking. My, my thing about it is that by saying yes, they're kind of giving them a start. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And I think the mismatch between the number of people involved in these studies, a couple of hundred, and the population of Europe, 500 million, it seems that mismatch that really goes to show that the, the, the evidence um, behind these sports drinks is, is, is very, very thin. And what about the generalizability? Did you look at the populations of the people that were studied? Yeah, most, most of these studies are done on what you might call endurance athletes. So these are highly trained cyclists or runners, and many of the studies are done in laboratory settings under sometimes quite odd conditions. In other words, they'd have the athletes um, not eat anything for 12 or 16 hours before the study. And of course, wouldn't be surprising if a bit of a sugary drink whilst you're doing an, an endurance, you know, cycling to exhaustion actually perked you up a bit. But that's not really representing what most athletes would do, which is eating a normal diet, probably having a breakfast, and a couple of hours later going for their run or their cycle, which is how most people would, 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 would do their activities. So generalizability, no, and mostly men, mostly young men. Almost exactly a year ago, Anders Breivik shot 75 of his fellow Norwegians in an attack that created headlines around the world and really threw into relief how public opinion is involved in a psychiatric diagnosis of insanity. There's a head-to-head -head, uh, on bmj.com asking if fanaticism is a form of madness, and also a blog by Julian Sheeler, who's a BMA ethics manager, looking at the wider issues around this. I'm joined in the studio now by Julian and Vivian Nathanson, who's Director of Professional Activities at the BMA, to talk about this. Julian, your blog articulates an uncomfortableness around interface between psychiatrists and the law and wider public opinion. Are you able to sort of boil that down for us? I suppose just briefly, one of the issues is why is it that Anders Breivik comes to the attention of psychiatry? Well, partly it's because of violations of moral norms. And therefore, the question arises of motive, purpose. Why did he do it? Was he actually competent, capable, was this a meditated, thought-through, planned event, or was this the act of a kind of insane individual? The difficulty there, of course, is if you decide that the person was actually insane, what happens then is you put them outside of the judicial system. Mm. The difficulty there is looking at some of the commentary around these appalling events was that public opinion, first of all, initially couldn't deal with the nature of the atrocity and invoked concepts of insanity, realising, however, that this may mean that they would be incarcerated in a psychiatric institution and not punished. This then led to calls, public opinion, calling him to be 
found sane and therefore, in some respects, responsible for his activities and therefore punishable. So you get this double sense, this double push. Drive him out of our culture because he's mad, bring him back in in order to punish him. So it's a complex, a very complex picture. Absolutely. So initially he had the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia and now... Uh, another set of psychiatrists have come around and said, no, uh, we think he is able to stand trial. In a murder trial, everything has to be done on the basis of facts of, of that trial. The hearsay evidence and things like that is, is not admissible. Vivian, do you think the law here is asking too much of psychiatrists? It's a very interesting one, because whether it's too much of psychiatrists or whether it's based upon the idea that there are absolutes, there are truths, it's a black and white situation. And of course, part of the nature of psychiatry is that it is uh, about trying to establish what is the principal cause of somebody's behaviour, symptoms and so on. But very often, there is an enormous overlap between a dozen different diagnoses, including what you might call the extreme end of normal. Mm. That makes it difficult because the courts are looking for black and white evidence. But psychiatry is all about shades of grey. But in addition to that, you get the other thing that mental state is not an absolute in the sense that how I am today is not how I will be tomorrow and indeed in an hour's time. Mm -hmm. So when somebody is seen by the psychiatrist, the way they behave, their answers to questions and so on will change from day to day. Um, I suppose this case is maybe not the best one to argue this point because it is so extreme. But the law will obviously want virtually a line in the sand mm-hmm. drawn when it comes to a, a, a diagnosis so they can have some sort of culpability. Who do you think should decide that? Is that <laughs> down to, to psychiatrists or the law or public opinion? It's a very sort of messy picture. I think at the end of the day, it probably comes down to public opinion. And that's sometimes... Uh, led by the jury in a court case and it's quite often led by the judge as well Mm. Uh, and it's whether you believe to a certain extent that somebody isn't fit to plead is insane in in terms of the law Uh, and judges will lead the juries to um, take note of or to ignore uh, medical opinion. Uh, One of the things we have to recognise is that the juries are also facing a difficult situation because as part of society they may well also not actually be sure of whether their role is to protect society from future abuses by an individual who's done something terrible or whether it is to punish that individual. And sometimes those two different outcomes of a trial give you a different uh, outcome in terms of where you would send the person. I mean, if, if you're talking about, about safety, then in the UK situation, sending somebody to a secure hospital potentially for the rest of their natural life is just as safe as sending them to prison. Mm. Um, but that won't necessarily evoke the same response from the public in terms of punishment. And we saw that with the Peter Sutcliffe case, the Yorkshire Ripper, where there was a clear feeling that he should be punished for what he'd done. Mm -hmm. uh, And therefore, he was sentenced to life imprisonment, but eventually ended up being treated for a long-standing psychiatric diagnosis. Mm. Um, In that case, the judge ruled that he should stand trial, uh, despite Mm. the diagnosis before. Julian, perhaps the judicial process has too much influence on psychiatry in that way? I mean, I I think 
they have different purposes. And I think it's very important to recognise that the primary purpose of psychiatry is to treat mental distress. Now, it seems to me that psychiatry is extremely good at recognising whether or not there is a mental disorder present. What the courts need to try and do is to identify whether or not someone is morally culpable. It seems to me clear that you can have significant mental disorders and retain some knowledge of right and wrong, retain some knowledge that your actions are, as it were, out with the law. As shown by Anders Prefect. As shown by Anders Prefect, the way in which it says in here that he planned it, that he tried to avoid being, being actually identified in the planning, that he was actually very calculating about it. The difficulty, it seems to me, is how you mesh those two things together, how you bring together a kind of scientific diagnosis of a mental disorder. Yes, it will have some normative aspect against the requirements of the court, which are to identify whether or not the individual retains moral culpability. That's very difficult. I mean, in cases like this, where there's there's so much at stake, do you think that psychiatrists maybe should just hold their hands up and go, we don't know, we can't deal with this, this is kind of beyond our remit? I think it would be impossible for them to do that because psychiatry, like the whole of medicine, is based upon this humanitarian principle. And Julia started by saying they're in the business of reducing suffering. I mean, the suffering may be mental suffering, but that's as as valid as, as physical suffering. And if you say we can't get involved in this, then what you're effectively saying is, and we can't reduce suffering, suffering by the individual themselves, but equally the suffering that they can cause to others around them, their family, friends, neighbours, the rest of society. So part of the human and humanitarian face of of medicine uh, has to be to try to do their best for individuals. And for psychiatrists, they often find themselves in these kinds of cases sitting on that balance line between the individual's suffering and the suffering of society. So in a sense, I would say that their role in the court is about the suffering of the individual, but it's also about the public health role of the suffering of society from people who are acting in a way which is damaging and which may be amenable to treatment. Then you get into a completely different issue of making sure that psychiatry isn't abused to make sure that everyone conforms. Mm. But with that set aside, psychiatry is about trying to reduce suffering. Thank you, Vivian Nathanson and Julian Sheather. That Head to Head is available online on bmj.com, as is Julian's blog, and both make interesting reads. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.